1938, the Welsh physician-turned-pastor D. Martin Lloyd-Jones moved from Wales to take an associate pastor role at Westminster Chapel in London under renowned British pastor G. Campbell Morgan. On God's providence, just a few months after Jones moved, World War II began. During the bombing raids of 1941, Westminster Chapel was hit three times, but each time firefighters were able to save the building. In 1943, G. Campbell Morgan retired and Martin Lloyd-Jones became the main teaching pastor of the church. One Sunday morning in 1944, during a service at Westminster Chapel, smack dab in the middle of Jones's pastoral prayer, a V-1 flying bomb, nicknamed the Doodlebug, landed on the guard's chapel just a few hundred yards away from Westminster Chapel. As you can imagine, the blast was absolutely deafening and shook the entire building, and the congregation <laughs> stood frozen in nervous attention, wondering if more bombs would follow. After a brief pause, those in attendance that day say that Lloyd-Jones continued his prayer as though nothing had happened, and the congregation sat down again. White dust from the ceiling covered Lloyd-Jones, but nevertheless, he pressed on to preach God's word. Now, friends, we hear a story like that, and although we admire Lloyd-Jones's resilient faith, it's almost like we would expect that, right, from a mature, godly pastor. After all, this, this brother had been a Christian from, for some time. He was trained in theology. He had ministerial battle scars that had steeled him to lead a church in that historical moment. But what about when we see a model of faith from someone unlikely, from someone we would not expect to have a persistent faith in Jesus Christ, let alone have faith in him at all from someone not trained in theology with zero Christian experience, from someone previously who we've considered a pagan. Well, that's a whole other thing altogether, isn't it? That type of unlikely candidate to be a model of faith is exactly what we find here in our passage this morning. So would you turn with me to Matthew 15? Matthew 15, it's on page 821 of the Bible underneath your seat. If you don't have a Bible this morning, please feel free to use that one provided. Matthew 15. Friends, remember where we are here in the context of Matthew's gospel. We're, we're a year or two into Jesus's earthly ministry in Galilee in the north of Palestine. Jesus has been busy about the work of preaching the good news that, that the kingdom of God, God's redemptive reign, has arrived in his coming as Israel's Messiah King. So to authenticate his message and to highlight his identity, Jesus performed many mighty works that accompanied his teaching. Miracles that, that broadcasted in 4K clarity the fact that this age to come, what we understand the kingdom to be, this, this age to come, the great age of future salvation, well, that age had broken into this age of sin and death. Jesus' miracles functioned like a neon sign with the bright, flashing message, the king has come, right? Salvation is here. And of course, Jesus' teaching and his works also signaled that he is much more than an ordinary human king. No human could exercise 
the control over nature and over the spiritual forces of darkness that Jesus did. No human ever taught with the unique authority that he possessed. So Matthew has labored to show us time and time again, not just that Jesus is the Messiah King, but that he is the very Son of God incarnate, God in human flesh. But thus far, all of this that Matthew has shown us has been within the natural boundaries of Israel. But friends, in our passage this morning, for the first and only time in his ministry, that's on record at least, Jesus crosses out of the boundaries of Israel into pagan territory, and there he encounters a Gentile woman whom Matthew calls a Canaanite, a woman who desperately needs his help. Let's read together. Friends, we're going to read uh, verses 21 all the way down to the end of the chapter in verse 39. Matthew 15, 21 to 39. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called the disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have, they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who were eight were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, by, by this time in Matthew's gospel, we ought not to be surprised at displays of Jesus' mercy to unlikely candidates like the Canaanite woman. We, we've seen this pattern repeatedly, haven't we, in Jesus' ministry? From Jesus' selecting of unlikely disciples to his healing of, of lepers and the servant of a Roman centurion, to his eating at table with tax collectors and sinners again and again and again, Jesus pours out his mercy on unlikely candidates. 
However, I think you can make a case that the recipient of mercy in our passage this morning is the unlikeliest candidate yet. Friends, you would be hard-pressed to find someone in the Gospels whose natural credentials made her, him or her more unlikely to receive help from Jesus. And yet, remarkably, I don't think you'll find a better example of humble and bold faith in the entire Gospel than this woman. Here's the main idea of our passage this morning that I pray will be the main idea of the sermon. The main idea of Matthew 15, 21 to 39. Bold faith takes hold of Jesus' wide mercy. Bold faith takes hold of Jesus' wide, expansive mercy. Friends, First of all, in verses 21 to 29, in this story of Jesus' encounter with the Canaanite woman, we'll see her bold faith. And then really over the course of the entire passage that I just read, we'll look together for a few moments at Jesus' wide mercy. Bold faith, wide mercy. Friends, of course, the tie that binds these three episodes together that we just read is that all three feature Jesus' compassion to the Gentiles, those outside God's chosen people. That's why I chose the phrase wide mercy. Jesus' mercy is not narrow. It's not ethnically discriminatory. No, it's expansive, wide mercy. He has ample mercy for all peoples. Beloved, I pray today that, that we together might be encouraged by the example of faith that we see here in this Canaanite woman. But more importantly, I pray that we might stand once again in awe at the mercy of our Savior who welcomes outsiders like her and like you and like me to come to him. Number one, bold faith. Verse 21 sets the scene of the story. It says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Friends, Matthew describes this setting so matter-of-factly that it'd be easy to miss the, the significance of what's happening. After his, after his theological conflict with the, the Pharisees about ceremonial hand-washing, Matthew says that Jesus withdrew. But, but look where he went. He didn't go back home to Nazareth, not to a, a cozy cabin in the, in the hills of Galilee. He withdrew to the district of Tyre, and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon are, are clearly, they're outside the border of Israel. So Jesus left Galilee and he would have traveled northwest some 30 to 50 miles along the, the Mediterranean coast. In Jesus' day, Tyre and Sidon were like, like Palestine under the control of the Romans. But historically, they were cities of Phoenicia. These cities and their inhabitants were the historic arch enemies of God's people. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus wrote that Tyre was notoriously Israel's bitterest enemy. Tyre and Sidon are infamous in the Bible as the object of blistering words of judgment from Yahweh through his prophets. So if you this afternoon take some time to read Isaiah 23 or Ezekiel 26 to 28, you'll understand what I'm talking about, where God targets Tyre and Sidon as objects of his judgment. Why does all this matter? Because when Matthew sets the scene for us, he wants us to see that Jesus heads to the most unexpected of places. It wasn't like he just took a wrong turn and, you know, accidentally wound up in the, the bad part of town. 
No, he went there intentionally. Why would he do that? Well, we can only presume it was to display God's saving purposes to the most unlikely of candidates, to extend God's kingdom reign even to the Gentiles. Look at verse 22. And behold, that's Matthew's way of saying, look at this. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Notice Matthew doesn't call this woman a Gentile, even though she was. He doesn't call her a, a, a Syrophoenician woman, as Mark calls her in his gospel, even though that was her ethnicity. He calls her a Canaanite woman. It's the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. A Canaanite woman. Matthew goes the extra mile to draw attention to this woman's most ancient descent. She's the offspring of the ancient enemies of God's people. She is a Canaanite. She's descended from the pagans that Joshua and the Israelites conquered when they took possession of the promised land. Think of all the things this woman had against her on that day. She's a Canaanite Gentile. She's a woman, which culturally would have placed her lower on the social ladder of that day. And her daughter was possessed by a demon, which of, of course signaled something spiritually dark and unclean at work in her family. Three strikes against her, if you're counting. If anyone was an unlikely object of Jesus' attention, surely it was her. Friends, consider this encounter in light of what we studied last week in verses 1 to 20. The scribes and the Pharisees, they condemned Jesus and the disciples for their ceremonial uncleanness and eating with, with hands unwashed, hands that may have contacted things in the marketplace that the Gentiles touched, so breaking the tradition of the elders. So what does Jesus do? Does he cower in fear of the Pharisees? <laughs> no, he heads straight to the region of the Gentiles. And there he helps a woman the religious leaders would have considered most unclean. The story is shocking on multiple levels. And one of those levels is how this woman identifies Jesus. Do you notice that? Friends, all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, it's not the Pharisees who identify Jesus correctly, those who should have known what to expect in, from the Old Testament. It's not the scribes. It wasn't even those from Jesus' hometown. It's this Canaanite woman. Look at what she says. Have mercy, have mercy upon me, O Lord, son of David. Friends, at the very least, Lord was a title of respect. But given its pairing here, coupling with, with son of David, it seems to communicate so much more, doesn't it? Friends, we know son of David is the messianic title given to Jesus from the very first verse of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. According to Matthew 9, 27, this is what the two formerly blind men cried out when Jesus passed them by that day. Have mercy upon us, son of David. When Jesus delivered the demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, the onlooking crowds, they asked, can this, can this be the son of David? It was a clear reference to Jesus' identity as the Messiah. We expect to hear these words out of the mouths of Jews who had waited for millennia for their Messiah to come, but from a Canaanite Gentile woman from Tyre and Sidon? Friends, this is shocking. This is just the first signal of this woman's remarkable faith. 
Apparently the fame of Jesus' mighty works had had reached beyond the borders of Galilee. This woman had had heard of Jesus' power and mercy, and she believed that he could deliver her precious daughter who was held under Satan's dark grasp. She had come to Jesus, the source of endless compassion and power for the answer to her family's deepest misery and shame. Perhaps this woman had already gone to the the local pagan temple for help. But the false gods of her people could do nothing to help her daughter's plight. Surely this one from Galilee, whom she kept hearing about, surely he could help, this Jesus of Nazareth. Beloved, the Canaanite woman came to the right place. But it might not have looked like it at first. Look at Jesus' response in verse 23. The woman cried out for mercy... But Jesus did not answer her a word. Friends, Jesus' response here is stunning. And frankly, it kind of seems to be out of keeping, right? With what we know about his responsive compassion. What's going on here? Why is Jesus giving this woman the, the cold shoulder? You know, the silent treatment? Well, because of what we know of Jesus from the rest of the Gospels, we can rule out just immediately any sense of hardness of heart or aloofness from this woman's pain. That's the opposite of who he is. Some have said that by his silence, Jesus is is kind of testing the woman's faith. That that may be a part of it. But friends, I think the reason for Jesus' silence is really revealed by the rest of his interaction and exchange with this woman. The rest of his conversation revolves around whether or not the Gentiles can receive mercy from God through Jesus. So friends, I think we ought to to see Jesus' silent treatment here as part of the theological point that he is making to this woman and to his disciples. This woman had no natural right to God's saving purposes. She was an outsider. She was a stranger to the promises made to Abraham and his offspring. She was outside God's covenant people. So friends, Jesus' silence here hangs in the air to draw further attention to the disparity between what this woman desperately wanted, deliverance for her daughter, and what she had a right to from Jesus. Absolutely nothing. Beloved, this, this woman should remind you of you. We'll talk more about God's wide mercy here in a few moments. But let's just take some time now to remember and praise God that he is in the business of saving the most unlikely of people. What makes someone a candidate for God's mercy in Christ is not their pedigree or their sterling performance or their biblical training or anything like that. What makes someone a candidate to receive God's mercy is their spiritual need. This is, this is what makes grace, grace, right? God's grace isn't his favor toward those who merit it, but his saving favor precisely toward those who don't. Grace would cease to be grace if we could earn it or achieve it by human qualifications or performance. Now, friends, what makes God's grace amazing is that God chooses to pour out the riches of his kindness to us despite our sin. Or maybe we could even say because of our sin. Friends, grace is so counterintuitive, humanly speaking. The greater and deeper your sin, the more obviously qualified you are to receive God's grace. His grace is for unlikely candidates. 
Friends, I hope this encourages you this morning, whether you are that unlikely candidate or whether you're praying for a friend or a family member who seems like a really, really unlikely candidate to receive any help from the Lord because of the choices that he or she has made in his or her life. Friend, the only requirement to receive God's mercy is not to clean yourself up first, to get your, your resume in order first, right, to, and then come to him but simply to recognize your spiritual need. You turn from your sin and you come to him. I love the words of the hymn. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Friends, in our story, Jesus remained silent, but not the woman. She continued to cry out, have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me, son of David. This woman was so persistent in her cries for mercy that the disciples became exasperated and asked Jesus to send this woman away. Like, move along, please, right? Verse 23, disciples came and begged him saying, send her away. She is crying out after us. Now, friends, it, it could be that, that the disciples wanted Jesus to send the woman away with her request unanswered. Like, who cares, right? It could be that they were that cold and calloused. But it's also possible, I think, just from the flow of the conversation, that they wanted Jesus to send the woman away with her request granted. You know, basically like, hey, Jesus, please do what she wants quickly, right? So she'll get out of our hair, right? It's still, it's still not great, but it's better. To me, Jesus' response to the disciples indicates this is what they were asking. Because he responds with a reason for not answering her right away. You see that? That's the logic of the conversation, I think. Jesus said, I was, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What Jesus is doing is now applying to himself and his mission in the world the very parameters of the mission he had given to his disciples in Matthew 10 when he sent them out on his behalf. That would be a really good cross-reference for you as you're looking at this, Matthew 10 and the disciples' mission. Back in chapter 10, Jesus sent his disciples out on their mission to preach the message of the kingdom. He told them in verse 5, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This was the order of priority. As we'll see here in a few moments, God, friends, has always had his eye on the world, but his saving promises came through the children of Abraham. And it was through them that God promised to send the Messiah. And it was to them that God made his kingdom reign first known through Christ Jesus. It would obviously be a misreading of this text to say that God sent Christ to save the Jews exclusively. Obviously. We're here today, right? However, God did reveal himself in Christ to the Jew first and then extended the gospel to the nations of the world. Paul would echo this priority in Romans 1 where he wrote in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. Friends, even Jesus' words about the priority of his mission were not enough to shut the Canaanite woman down. She flung herself at the feet of Christ and begged him for his help. Verse 25, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. What a simple but profound request. Friend, this is the kernel of all genuine prayer. Lord, help me. 
I believe you have a help that I need that only you can give. This woman recognized that in Christ Jesus was a help she couldn't find anywhere else. She believed that her daughter's imprisonment in the dungeon of demonic darkness wasn't too big of a problem for the son of David. Even though her daughter wasn't even there with her at that time, yet she believed Christ Jesus could help. There was far more help in Christ than there was need in her. And so it is for us. Look at Jesus' response in verse 26. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. All right, this has to be one of the most shocking statements ever to come out of the mouth of Christ, right? At least on record. To our modern ears, it sounds harsh. It sounds offensive, maybe even a little racist, right? Well, even though Jesus is speaking in parable-like imagery, he's not ambiguous. Clearly, the children in this parable refer to the children of Israel, right? And the dogs refer to the Gentiles, some Greek scholars have pointed out that the, the word Jesus used here for, for dogs isn't the word normally associated with like, you know, mangy street mongrels, but rather for the household pet type of dog. The woman's response about eating the crumbs up from under the table seems to affirm this reading of, of what that word means. So Jesus is saying something like, it's not right to take the children's bread and, and throw it to the doggies or throw it to the puppies. Okay, Yeah. But he's still referring to the Jews as children to whom the bread of his kingdom message is intended and the Gentiles as the dogs to whom it's not. During Christ's incarnation and earthly ministry, God prepared the meal for his children, not for the dogs. The Gentiles are clearly postured here as on the outside looking in. Beloved Jesus' words here sound scandalous, and that's because they are. He intends for this woman and for his disciples and for really all of us this morning to feel in our bones the scandal of what she's asking for. She's asking for something that she has no natural right to. And honestly, something that in, even in Jesus' earthly ministry was the great exception to the rule. Jesus' three years of ministry in Palestine was centered on seeking and saving the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He was about the work of feeding the children, not feeding the dogs. It wouldn't be until after Jesus' resurrection, just before his ascension, that he opened the floodgates of gospel hope to the Gentiles very obviously. He told his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Surely Jesus' hard-to-hear words would turn the woman away. Remarkably, she yet still pressed in. Verse 27, she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. This is an amazing woman. Or perhaps more accurately, the spiritual insight that God granted this woman is amazing. We've already noted that even though she was a Gentile, she rightly identified Jesus as the Lord and the Son of David. Friends, now she becomes the first person in all of Matthew to immediately and accurately understand one of Jesus' parables. The first one. 
Over and over again, we've seen even the disciples' dullness and slowness to understand the spiritual significance of Jesus' parables. Just as a contrast, let your eyes scan up to verses 1 to 20 from last week. In verse 15, Peter and the disciples asked Jesus, well, explain to, to us what he said in verse 11. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. It, it seems so straightforward, right? Food doesn't defile a person. Words from the heart do, but they don't get it. And so Jesus says in verse 16, are you also still without understanding? Like the disciples are behind where they should have been at this point in time. Now contrast that with the Canaanite woman who immediately understood the parable. And why did she understand it? Because she was a mom and understood well the concept of children dropping crumbs at mealtime, right? Or maybe husbands dropping crumbs at mealtime, I don't know. Because she owned a puppy, maybe that was it. No, she, she grasped Jesus' words and had the spiritual intuition to reply with great wisdom because she inserted herself into the parable. She inserted herself into the parable. You see that? Jesus says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She didn't reply, friends. Now, who are you calling a dog, Jesus? Right? No, where do you get the nerve? No, she was not offended. She was not put off. She agreed with Christ. She was the doggy in this parable. She was not among the primary intended recipients of Jesus' kingdom message and ministry. And yet, and yet, she believed that even the dogs could eat the crumbs that fell from the master's table. You see what this woman is saying? Do you see what she understands? She's basically saying, yes, I am a dog. But I am a dog under the table of the master. And even the crumbs of the master's power and mercy are enough to give my daughter the help she needs. She's saying, Jesus, I believe that the bread of your mercy is so expansive, so plentiful, so abundant, that there is still more than enough for us Gentiles to eat. Friends, I think this woman could have responded wrongly to Jesus in, in one of two ways. There are ways that even you and I can respond wrongly to Jesus as well. This woman could have been so proud and self-righteous to believe that she deserved a seat at the table with the Jews, that her sin was so small that she belonged there. Or she could have believed that her sin was so great that she refused that even the crumbs that Jesus offered her. The first response would have been obviously proud, right? The second response looks humble, but it is equally filled with pride. The first response would have minimized her sin. The second response would have minimized Jesus' mercy. And neither of those responses are focused on Christ, but on self. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you can miss Jesus by thinking too little of your sin. Or you could miss Jesus by thinking too little of his, of his grace. You can reject him by thinking too highly of your own righteousness or too little of his mercy. Friends, don't do that this morning. Don't arrogantly assume that, that your standing before God is based on your works, on what you do. But likewise, don't assume that Christ's work is not sufficient to grant you that same standing. The beauty of the gospel, friends, is that, is that what the gospel does, it simultaneously lowers us down in humility 
while lifting us up out of despair. It has both a downward trajectory and an upward trajectory. So friends, take your eyes off yourself and look to Jesus. He alone can rescue you and forgive you and restore you. Friends, no wonder Jesus responds like he does in verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This woman's faith in Christ, friends, was tenacious. It was gritty. It was bold. Why? Because she possessed the the key necessary ingredients to authentic faith. She had great humility before Christ mixed with great confidence in Christ. So often we think that humility and confidence are mutually exclusive, that they're at odds with one another. And yes, friends, humility is at odds with self-confidence. Beloved, you will not find a greater symmetry, a greater alignment than between humility and God-confidence. Humility makes us skeptical of ourselves, yes, but and realistic about our own resources, yes, but humility at the same time makes us realistic about God's limitless resources and therefore makes us supremely certain in His ability to meet our need and His ability to provide what He's promised. Friends, Proverbs 28.1 says, The righteous are as bold as a lion. Why? Because they're self-confident like a lion? Because they possess in themselves natural strength like a lion? No, because the righteous are confident in the character and proven track record of their God, and that confidence infuses them with a holy boldness and courage. Even while the wicked flee, when no man pursues, the righteous are as bold as a lion. Friends, is your faith marked by this type of gutsiness? Is it marked by the type of humble yet courageous faith that perseveres past natural barriers and obstacles? Well, how would you even know that, right? Well, I think one way that we can discern whether we're marked by this type of faith is the presence or lack of faith that shows up in our prayer life. So often we give up on praying because we don't get the answer that we want right away. And I think part of that is because we live in the age of the immediate. I can have my food warmed up right now. Why can't I get an answer from God right now? I can watch the show I want at the time I want, really from any place in the world, so long as I'm near a cell phone tower or an Elon Musk satellite. Why can't I get from God what I want right now? I can order something from Amazon and it can be inside my garage via key delivery within the day. What's taking Jesus so long? Living in the age of the immediate conditions our hearts toward a small and flimsy faith. This woman got the silent treatment from Jesus. She cried out all the more. Jesus gave theological reasons why she didn't deserve his mercy. She fell down at his feet and begged for his help. Jesus then illustrated all of this by calling her a dog who didn't deserve the children's bread. And she postured herself as the dog under the table, happily snatching the children's crumbs. She persevered. She would not let go. Friends, this Canaanite, this Canaanite woman is like Israel on the night he received that name from the Lord. 
In Genesis 32, Yahweh came to Jacob in the night at Peniel, and the Lord fought with him to humble him. But Jacob would not let the Lord go. He said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob's desperation for God is embodied in this woman's desperation for Christ. Beloved, biblical faith is humble and it is bold. It is simultaneously self-effacing and God-magnifying. And because of that, it perseveres when all the circumstances says it should not. This is the type of faith that receives a reward from Christ Jesus. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. doesn't mean that faith is blind optimism. Faith is confidence in the unseen realities that Christ has won and that Christ has promised. So I wonder, friend, does this type of confidence in Christ mark your life? Are you growing in his, this type of, of certainty in his power and mercy and provision? Friend, do you believe truly that Jesus Christ can help your rocky marriage? Do you have confidence that he can rescue your wayward child? Do you trust that he can save your unbelieving friend or family member? Do you really believe that he will give you the strength to endure your dead-end job that you hate? Friends, do you have faith that Christ Jesus will provide for this church for years to come, both spiritually and financially and locationally and all the rest? Do you have the courage to keep following him by faith even when his answers to these requests seems slow? Or will you, will you be content if Christ's rewarding of your faith isn't the answer you sought, but rather a deeper and fuller relationship with him? Is Christ enough for you? I so often quote Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was in 19th century England what Lloyd-Jones was in 20th century England. Spurgeon preached 10 sermons on the Canaanite woman <laughs> throughout his life. He loved this story. In one of his sermons, he said this, Faith hangs on to Christ in the dark. It hangs on to a silent Christ. It holds to a refusing Christ. It holds to a rebuking Christ, and it will not let him go. Faith is the great holdfast that hooks a soul onto the Savior. Brothers and sisters, is your soul hooked onto the Savior by a humble yet bold faith? You will not engineer this type of faith by looking within. You won't get it by pulling yourself up by your own moral bootstraps. You will not discover it within yourself, but only outside yourself as you look to Christ. The only thing that increases faith's measure, listen, the only thing that increases faith's measure or faith's amount is faith's object. So fix your eyes on Jesus, on his limitless power and mercy, and by his spirit, watch him increasingly give you a bold faith. Number two, we see Jesus' wide mercy. We've been talking about the expansive mercy of Christ all throughout this story so far. 
Friends, within the biblical storyline, Jesus' encounter with this woman is massively significant. It signals, once again, something that Matthew has flagged from the very beginning of his gospel, that although Christ Jesus came to fulfill God's saving promises made to Israel, and that very fulfillment, he brings God's promised blessing to the nations. Friends, this is not God's plan B, right? God did, God did not turn to the Gentiles only because the Jews rejected Jesus. This is plan A. This is what God promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. Abraham, your offspring is going to bless the nations of the world. It's what he promised Isaiah. Isaiah 49.6. Is it too light? Or it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Friends, I already referenced Matthew 1.1 and Jesus' genealogy in reference to him being the son of David. But that's not all that verse says, is it? What does it say? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There it is. The promised offspring is here. The light-bearing one who will bring blessing to the nations has come. Friends, this opening genealogy of Jesus is remarkable in many ways. I don't know if you remember, this is my first sermon ever at Redeeming Grace Church, the genealogy in Matthew 1. Not counting the one that I candidated here, but my first sermon as pastor, the genealogy. What was I thinking? I have no idea. Just wanted to start preaching through Matthew. This genealogy is kind of like an airport tarmac worker, right? It points us to the final destination. Jesus came to open the floodgates of God's mercy to the Gentiles. After all, in that very genealogy is a Canaanite woman. Listen as I read Matthew 1.4. Pick it up right in the middle. In Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Laced into the very ancestry of King Jesus is a Canaanite woman of faith. Like Rahab, this Canaanite woman that Jesus met on that day in the district of Tyre and Sidon is a grace-filled preview of the great multitude of Gentiles to follow. The untold millions who have responded in repentance and faith as the gospel of Jesus is preached among the nations. People from every tribe, tongue, and nations bowing their knee to Jesus the King by faith. As one theologian said in this Canaanite woman, we see kind of an ultrasound of the coming multinational church of Christ. Friends, we're not going to look at these other two sections of the passage in great detail, but verses 29 to 31 and 32 to 39, they echo the same theme. The main takeaway from these sections as well is that the things Jesus is doing for the past year plus for the Jews, he now pivots to do for the Gentiles. You say, well, how do you know that, John? I mean, verse 29 says that, that Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee. That's clearly back within the boundaries of Israel. Well, yes, indeed. But Mark in his gospel says explicitly that Jesus did these works in the Decapolis, which in the region of Galilee is an area inhabited by the Greeks. It was a Gentile area. And Matthew even drop, drops us a clue in our text 
that signals that Jesus did these mighty deeds for the Gentiles. See if you can find it. Look at your Bible, verses 29 to 31. Where is the clue that Matthew drops us that Jesus did these works among the Gentiles? Feel free to shout it out if you find it. That's right. That's right, I heard it. It says the crowds and seeing Jesus' mighty acts wondered and they glorified the God of Israel. These Gentiles turned to worship Israel's God through Christ. Jesus' mighty works elicits the worship of the true and living God. I love verse 29. says that Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down there. It's the same language that was used of him back in Matthew 5.1 before the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down. I don't know if you remember this, but we learned back in the Beatitudes many moons ago that Jesus is pictured as the new Moses, right? He ascends the mountain of God, not to receive God's word as Moses did, but to give his word, to give God's word to the people. And now Jesus assumes that same role for the Gentiles. He sat down on the mountain. He's come to lead the new Exodus, to deliver all peoples, both Jews and Gentiles from the guilt of sin and effects of the curse. As he sat there, he powerfully demonstrated his power and authority by rolling the curse back before their very eyes. He loosed the tongue of the mute who could never speak. He healed the congenitally lame. He gave sight to those blind from birth. Friends, surely only the Lord of creation could do this. And surely what we see here in these verses of Jesus' mighty work means that Satan's dark reign over the Gentiles is doomed. On the mountain, Jesus the, the king undid human suffering. The horrific precursors to death, which of course merely previewed the day when he would defeat death itself. By now, maybe you're tracking with the significance of his feeding of the 4,000 in verses 32 to 38. Why would Matthew include like an identical miracle to the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 14? It just seems redundant. Some details are different, but the thrust is clearly the same. Much of the wording about what Jesus did is remarkably similar to his feeding of the 5,000. Beloved, I think Matthew is pointing us again to the wideness of Jesus' mercy. He's not just the gracious provider and bread of life for the Jews. He's not just that way for the people of Israel, but for all nations who come to him by faith. You might be thinking, well, how do we know that the feeding of the 5,000 or the 4,000, excuse me, the feeding of the 4,000 is a miracle for the Gentiles? Well, first of all, I think that the flow, the way that these accounts are put together lends us to that. But Matthew, again, leaves us subtle clues in this account. In verse 37, in verse 37, he doesn't use the same word for basket as he does back in chapter 14, verse 20. There he used a particular Jewish word for basket. But here in verse 37, it's a much more general term, which many scholars suggest is he's suggesting a different cultural setting than the, the previous miracle. In the feeding of the 5,000, there were 12 baskets left over, symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel, and the 12 disciples. Here, there are seven perhaps signifying the fullness of how God's provision overflows to the nations. The crumbs are falling to them. Christ's mercy is so wide that even the crumbs of his goodness are enough to satisfy our souls. Beloved, let's praise God for this type of abundant kindness, that through faith in Jesus' perfect life, 
by trusting in his atoning substitutionary death in our place for our sin, by resting in his powerful victory over the grave, we receive God's mercy full and free. Mercy that heals, mercy that forgives, mercy that, that makes us new, mercy that is wide enough for all who will entrust himself, themselves to him. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 15, and we'll close with this. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show Christ or God's truthfulness. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning for the beauty of your grace and the wideness of your mercy. Oh Lord, we praise you for the example of, of bold faith that we see in the Canaanite woman. But even more than that, at the compelling kindness of a Savior who stooped to help her. Oh Lord, we thank you that when we were far off, although we were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God and the world, you through Christ have made us near. You have brought us into the very fellowship of your covenant through Christ. Lord, we thank you uh, that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you have made us alive together with Christ. You have seated us, us Gentiles, us strangers, us sinners, with Christ in the heavenly places. You've given us hope. You've given us the hope of eternal life. Everlasting fellowship with our Creator. Oh, Father, we praise you for this. And we ask, Lord, that you, through your mercy, might compel us to make this message known wherever we are this week. Oh, Lord, as we uh, come in contact with unlikely candidates for your mercy, whether it's in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our workplaces, help us to remember that we too, at one time, were unlikely candidates to receive your grace. And may we boldly proclaim the saving message of Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.